Exodus chapter number 33. I want to begin reading at verse number 7. We're going to read down to verse number 18. We may read down to the end of the chapter. We'll let the Lord lead us. The Bible says, And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that every one which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. You know, let me pause there and say, I'm glad there's a meeting place with God, aren't you? I'm glad there's a place where we can go and meet the God of heaven. You say, preacher, where is that? In a spiritual sense, it's the throne room of our heart in which we invite the Lord into, and the throne room of His grace in which we enter boldly by the blood of Jesus. But I'm thankful that there's also a place where we come, and there's a designated time. I don't believe we have to be within the confines of that, but I'm thankful there is a time where we can gather on a Sunday morning and hear the songs of Zion and the preaching of the Word of God and be around people that love the Lord. I'm glad there's a place for people that seek the Lord, aren't you? The Bible says that this place was for them a place where they sought the Lord says in verse 8, And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle, that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door, and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. The Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. You ever wondered where Joshua got the power of God on his life? You ever wondered why that God could use Joshua? It's found there in verse number 11. Even when Moses left, Joshua said, no, I'm going to stay a little while. It'd behoove all of us and you young people. I'll tell you how you can get to a place where God can use you. You just stay in the tabernacle. You stay in the presence of God. You stay in the throne room. And don't let your relationship with Christ be dependent upon adults in your life and dependent upon friends in your life. It doesn't matter who leaves the tabernacle. If you'll stay close, you'll find God will do something great with you. It says, And Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people. Thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. Consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. He said not unto, and he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. 
The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. Thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. I want to read to you verse number 18. It's going to be the text this morning and center our thought. It says, and he said, now this is speaking of Moses. We find this is the culmination of all that he said in the prior verses. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And we're going to spend a little time this morning finding out what that means. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the presence and power of your spirit. Lord, I thank you that the Holy Ghost is not to be feared this morning, but to be surrendered and submitted to. And I'd ask, Father, that you do in hearts what only you can do. Now, Lord, you know how bad I need your help this morning. You know the feebleness of my flesh. Lord, you know the weakness of my speech and my mind. God, you know how much that I, that I need you this morning. Lord, you know that even if I was at a place where through oratory and eloquence, I could preach a message, Lord, without your unction and power, it's meaningless. So, God, I I publicly before them, but, Lord, I also in your throne room submit myself to you this morning, Lord. Just ask that you'd use me for your glory. Lord, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone without Christ, I'd pray, Father, that this morning would be the morning. They would finally wave the white flag of their heart and surrender to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and call upon your Son's name for sweet and free salvation. Lord, you know each heart's need, so I, I, I'm just going to ask you to meet it, God. Lord, help us when we leave this place to know we've met with you, that you've done a mighty work in our hearts and lives. We love you this morning, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This is a well-trod passage of Scripture. I, I'm very aware of that this morning. And chances are I may not even tell you anything that you don't know this morning. Don't get up and leave just yet, amen. (laughs) But I just want to spend a few moments this morning looking at this passage and pulling a few things out that the Lord spoke to my heart about. Now, most of you know the context of this passage, that we're in the midst of the giving of the Old Testament law, and that God has commissioned Moses to a great task He is to perform. God's been preparing Moses his whole life for this task. Let me just drop something for our young people this morning. Understand that God is trying to make you what He wants you to be. You may not see that. It may not make sense to you right now. And I understand what it is to be a teenager. I was a teenager just maybe a couple days ago. Amen? And I I remember what it's like. And I look back now and see that God's hand was moving and molding and making me what He wanted me to be. So don't be scared of that. He had to spend some time in the backside of the desert if he was ever going to lead anybody through it. God had been moving in Moses' life. But we find that as Moses comes to the Mount of God, to Mount Sinai, and the law is being given... That a place that is terrifying to others is a place of comfort and rest to Moses. And as he's standing here, the Bible says in verse number 11, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. Let me just pause for a moment and say this. You know, Moses had a lot of privileges in life when it comes to spiritual things. Moses is uh, one of the first men likened unto the Son of God prophetically. Moses was a man that was used of God in a mighty way. Moses had seen the burning bush. 
Moses had seen the Red Sea parted. Moses had seen the plagues in Egypt. Moses had seen a lot of things that were important to his spiritual walk. Moses had heard a lot of wonderful and gracious things. Moses had heard the word of God. And the Bible says that here that the Lord spake to him face to face as unto a friend. Now you might say, well, preacher, the Bible says that no man shall see the Lord's face. And I understand that. What the Bible is telling us is the same way that you and I might stand and talk. And there's not a lot of form and then there's not a lot of pomp and circumstance. But we can just be comfortable with each other and converse with each other. That the Lord spoke to Moses like he'd speak to his friend. That's a wonderful privilege. Can I say to you that you and I, if we've been delivered from Egypt's bondage, we've seen the spiritual Red Sea parted. We've seen the plagues that made Egypt uncomfortable and broke our chains of sin. We've seen the providential hand of God parting the Red Sea and making... You know, this isn't the message, but I I just can't help this this morning. You know, I like the fact that the Word of God is pictured as water many times. Do you know that? And there was a boundary preventing the children of Israel from the promised land of God. And did you know it was a boundary of water? But the Bible teaches us that Moses led them through God, providentially parted the waters and made a way where no way had been made. And Moses, who is a picture of Christ, walked through that parted Red Sea and he didn't walk on muddy water and he didn't have to kick fishes around. It wasn't a half-done job, but he walked through on dry land. And aren't you thankful this morning that when there was a barrier between you and the will of God, that when there was a barrier between you and the presence of God, that when you were lost, in Egypt sin and you were faced with the unsurmountable mountain of water that was the law of God that you had a Savior that walked through and parted and made a way and led you across on dry land. Isn't that a wonderful thought this morning? That's vital and that's important. We've been through this and if, if you've been saved any amount, well, I'd say if you've been saved any amount of time mounting to two seconds or more, you've probably had an experience where you've talked with the Lord in a personal way. When he's conversed with you, when he's called you by name. And if you don't know what that means, I may not even be able to explain it to you. But but a time when you get alone with God and God just seems so real and he seems so present and he seems just right there in your life and you talk to him and it's almost as if you can watch your prayers flood into the throne room and you've talked with God face to face. That's a wonderful thing. Isn't it a blessing to know we have a God we can talk to? Isn't it a blessing to know we don't have to talk through a priest? We can talk to God through our great high priest that sitteth at the right hand of God. But we don't have to confess our sins to any man. The Bible never commands you to do that. The Bible commands you to confess your faults one to another, but never says you're to confess your sins to each other. You confess your sins only unto the God of heaven. And in a wonderful truth, isn't that a marvelous thing? Moses had seen a lot of things, but we find that before the task that God had appointed him to, Moses had a request. It was so vital and so important to him that he said in verse number 15, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Moses said, if I don't get this in my life, I'm not moving from this place. That's a pretty important thing. That's vital to him. That's something that is necessary to Moses. This isn't an optional thing. I tell you the problem today in Christianity, the presence of God has become an optional thing to us. If we've got it, we've got it. If we don't, there's always next week. We've got to a place where it's not a vital thing to us. And the power of God is not a vital thing. I'd propose to you this morning, until we get downright urgent about it, we're not going to see God move. 
We see in this passage that Moses' heart cry is summed up in verse number 18. He didn't ask for great riches. I don't know. If I'd been Moses, I'd have been carnal about it. Amen. <laughs> I would have said, I want some Humvees if I'm going to lead this group across the desert, you know. I would have said, I, 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 want, I want some water bottles. I want a water tanker that's going to take us across the, the desert. I would have probably been carnal about it. I would have said, I want some muzzles for all these millions of people because all they do is gripe and complain and moan. Amen. But Moses says there's one thing, God, that if I don't get, I'm just going to stay put right here. There's one thing that I will not move. I will not go anywhere until this is present in my life. And he describes it in this word, glory. Show me thy glory. Now, if we could stop and define that word, you'd find it pretty elusive. But if I've studied my Bible correctly, I find that the glory of God is synonymous with the presence of God manifest in a powerful way. The presence of God is with each and every one of us. I'm thankful that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But the glory of God is not just the fact that He's in our life, but the fact that He's manifest in our life, made to appear in our life. Not in a visible sense, but in a spiritual sense. It's evident when you have the power of God upon you. And it's evident when you don't. The Bible teaches us here, that the glory of God is the manifest presence of God in the life of a believer. It's God showing up in a big way, if we could put it in a very colloquial phrase. It's having the power and victory of God in your life. It's being an instrument of the Holy Ghost and of the will of God. And all these things we could lump together in simply saying that having the glory of God in your life means that God has all of you and you have all of God that you can get. We find that Moses makes this plea to the Lord. And I want us to just notice a few things this morning. I want us to look at the verses that summarize the plea for the glory of God. And I want you to read them again with me. Verse 12, Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in thy sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. Can I say to you that within this plea, we find one of the reasons Moses made this plea is because of the task that was set before him. He says in verse 12, to summarize it very simply, he says, Lord, you've asked me to do a great work. You've asked me to do something vastly beyond my means to do and to accomplish. You've asked me to do something that no human instrumentality can do. And truly, if you stop and contemplate the vastness of the task set before him, you would agree with that thought. If you stop and think what it would be, and we do not know exactly how many that Moses led across uh, the desert uh, into the promised land or to the promised land, but the best estimations put it in the millions. I mean, we're not talking about a ragtag group of, of two or three hundred people, but we're talking literally a nomadic nation that was led across the desert. And they had to be fed. They had to be uh, or remain clothed. Amen. That ought to be a rule for all of us, shouldn't it? <laughs> they, had to, they had to have clothes. They had to have food. They had to have water. They had to have all these things in their life that were vital to their existence. And it's all on Moses to provide. And Moses says simply, Lord, the only way I can do this is if you're going to be with me. Boy, isn't an encouraging thought 
that it doesn't matter what faces us, with the presence of God, we're equipped to handle it. Isn't it encouraging? I mean, there's been some things in my life that I've faced that have been difficult. I'm sure most of you have probably bigger fish stories to tell than I would have of things that have been in your life uh, that were unsurmountable. The only way they could be accomplished was with the presence of God. Can I say that the work of the church is an insurmountable task without the presence of God? You know, I, I think it would behoove us every now and then to just take a moment and try to view things through the eyes of the lost sinner. You stop and think about the premise of winning a person to Jesus Christ. By the way, we don't save people. We might lead them to Christ or win them to Christ, but the Holy Spirit of God convicts them and the Son of God saves them and the Holy Spirit seals them. We don't save them or do any of those things. We lead them to Jesus Christ. But what an insurmountable thought that you would approach a person that does not know you, that does not know your life, that does not know your belief system, and in the matter of maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes or even a couple of hours, unseat the philosophies of their life, crash the foundations of their self-dependence, and show them Christ evidently crucified before them. What an insurmountable thought. And yet we have some today that would reduce soul winning to a matter matter of uh, mere machinery. Just machinery. Just nothing. They say the right words, they ought to be saved. (laughs) Without ever believing in the heart under righteousness. That's an insurmountable task. What about the notion of trying to see the, the church grow for the glory of God? And you say, that doesn't seem insurmountable to me. Then you don't know Baptists very well. Amen? You get this many people in a room together without a fist fight, you've done good on Sunday. Amen? I, I mean, trying to get people to work together and to serve God and to love one another without the power and presence of God in the midst. It's absolutely impossible. Pretty soon the flesh will take over and the devil will have a wrench in the whole operation. Let me pull it out of the realm of ecclesiastical efforts and let me put it in the realm of our life. You face the death of a loved one. Your flesh is too weary to keep faith in the God of heaven without the effectual work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You face, hey, what about this? You face a young one that's gone wrong. I don't know what that's like i got one on the way right now. He can't cause too much trouble. Amen. At least not to me. He kicks my wife every now and then, but he don't cause too many problems on my end. I told her the other day, I said, you want me to whip him? She said, no, I don't think that'll work. (laughs) But you face the heartbreaking consequence of a child that's gone astray and gone into the world, and you have to face that, and you have to pray for them, and you have to reconcile that. That's too great for your flesh to bear. It must be done in the Spirit must be done through the Word and power of God. That's the only way. What about praying for that loved one? Some of you have been praying for... And I know, I know because I've been with some of you for, for a long time, and some of you for a short time, but, but some of you have been praying for a loved one for quite a while. How do, you, how do you stay consistent? How do you keep it up? How do you keep to the task? How do you go to bended knee night after night after night and plead with the God of heaven to intervene without growing weary and giving up the fight and giving up the task and laying down and saying, I'm done with it. Your flesh is incapable of doing Even if prayer was a carnal exercise, your flesh would be incapable, but it's not. It's a spiritual exercise. It's impossible. 
We have a great task before us, living the Christian life, being faithful, staying consistent in our walk with the Lord, and serving God, and doing great things for Him, and fulfilling the will of God in our lives. That's an insurmountable task without the presence of God. And I'll tell you why we have so many wishy-washy Christians in this day that we live in. We're trying to do this thing without Christ. I mean, I know that's not eloquent. I know I didn't do a backflip when I said that. But let me say it again. We're trying to live this thing without Jesus Christ in our life. Oh, we've got Him in our heart. We don't have Him in our life. We've got Him in our heart, but we don't have Him in our life. We have the practical presence of God. We have the presence of God that is perpetual, but we do not have the presence of God that is effectual. He's living in us, but He's not on us. He's in our hearts, but He's not in our lives. It's an insurmountable task. That was the second thing, reason that He cries out and says this, because of His status or His relationship to God. Look again at verse number 13. The Bible says, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. The second reason he cries out for the presence of God is because he has a relationship with God that must be maintained through the presence of God. I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. You cannot maintain a relationship with anybody without their presence. I know that's not deep waters, but stop and think about it. You cannot maintain a relationship with anyone without their presence in some aspect, in some way, in some variable in, in your life. It may not be their physical presence right there with you, but it would be their, their emotional presence through the means of communication in some way. You've got to have communication. You've got to have a person's presence to maintain a fellowship with them. It's impossible to do it otherwise. You may stay on good terms with them, but you won't stay in fellowship with them unless you have their presence with you. And you know what Moses says? Moses says, Lord, you've taken me out of Egypt's land. You've stripped me of my home. You've stripped me of my life. You've stripped me of my status. You've stripped me. And all I have left, Lord, is you. And so if I can't have your presence, it's just not worth it. D.L. Moody said that the Lord's paid for first class tickets for most Christians and they're riding in coach. You start to think about it. We've got this phrase now today, underemployment. Underemployed. You know what underemployed is? That means you've got a job that ain't worth having. There's unemployed, and that's people that ain't got no job at all. They're really better off than the underemployed half the time with the way our government works. And then there's underemployed. And that means people that work a job, but it's not a job that really fills their needs. It's enough that they have a job, but it's not a job that really fills their needs. Can I say that we live in a day of a bunch of underemployed Christians? Christians have been saved by God's grace that the Spirit of God indwells them, that they have a love for the Lord, and the Lord certainly loves them, but they're missing out on the majority of the joy of the Christian walk. They're living a second-class Christian life. We call it this today, casual Christianity. A Christianity that's empty and that's hollow, saved but not much else. Amen? We live in a day filled with a Christianity branded this way and sold this way and bought this way. We live in a day where Christian, where most Christians are missing the blessings of the presence of God. Most churches, if the presence of God, well, when the presence of God left, most of them didn't even know it when it happened. There's a lot of churches that if the rapture happened, there wouldn't be a thing changing churches. 
There's a lot of churches that if Christ walked through the back door and took over their service, they wouldn't know what to do. And I'm talking about fundamental churches this morning. I'm not talking about the formal Southern Baptists. I'm not not talking about the Charismatics. I'm not talking about the high church formal places. I'm talking about places that are branded with all the right things. Doctrine as straight as a gun barrel and just as hollow. If God took over their service, they wouldn't know what to do with it. And they don't know what they're missing out on. We see because of who he was, because of the relationship he had. He said, I've got to have your presence. It's vital. It's necessary. I want you to notice the third thing, because the testimony that he had. Notice what he says. Look down at verse number 16. He says, For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the earth, all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Let me give you a little hint as to what true separation is. Separation is not a a book full of standards. Separation is is the effect of the presence of God in the life of a believer, effectually making him a different kind of person than those surrounding him because they do not have the presence of God in their life. I'll tell you what's happened in a lot of Christianity today. People have the standards, but they don't have the God that causes the standards. They've got everything right, except they don't have him. A wise man once said that the end of every standard and the beginning of every standard ought to be the presence of God. It ought ought to be birthed from the presence of God in your heart and life. And the end result, the end goal ought to be that the presence of God would be more manifest in your midst. The reason we have trouble teaching young people standards is because they're just a, a book of rules to us. I'm convinced the biggest problem with young Christians today is old Christians. Are we okay this morning? I know I'm, I know I'm younger. I understand that. But is that not true this morning? I was talking to my Sunday school class this morning. In Psalms 115, the psalmist talks about idols and he says that they that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. So the idols in our life don't just affect those that have fashioned them, but there'll be another group of people that come along that put their faith in those idols and they weren't even the ones that made them. And what's happened to our young people today is they're worshiping the dead idols of past generations. Just a dead Christianity. And that satisfies and suffices in their life because they don't see anything greater or better. They think this is just the way it's supposed to be. This is just the way it's supposed to be. And then they last about two or three years and they get out right in the middle of the world because that satisfies their flesh and they at least think that's real. They at least think that's real because they've seen so much dead stuff within the walls of the church house. It ain't going to cut it until we get the presence of God. It's not going to work. we got a testimony. Moses said, other people are watching me. What are they seeing? What are they seeing? I'll tell you why the church is losing ground. And, and, and radical, militant Islam. You know, that's the only kind of Islam that's devoted Islam. Is radical, militant Islam. A Muslim that is not a, a, a absolute uh, 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 bloodlusting murderer by practice. A Muslim that is not one of those is a bad Muslim. If they follow the Koran, they're going to hate Westerners, hate Jews, hate Christians, and they're going to seek in some way to destroy them. That's what the Koran teaches. If you don't believe it, I'll show it to you. But you know why we're losing ground to the Muslims? And by the way, and listen, it, it, it used to be it used to be predominantly Arab people that were Muslims. 
Do you know that's not the case anymore? Do do you know that Islam took over a whole faction of the African-American community probably 40, 50, 60 years ago? Ever wonder why Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali? And let me say that it's happening, and we ought to be concerned when it happens to African-American community, whether we are or not. But let me say that it's also affecting the, the white American community as well. You see the girlfriend of the Boston bomber? Middle class, young lady from a good home, got lured into Islam. You know why that is? They're looking for something real. The testimony of past generations was so empty. They're looking for something real. Something that has, that has claws to it. Something that digs into a man's life and changes him. And you know what? They're finding it in Islam. Islam will change you. You hear me this morning? It'll change you. Not for the good of yourself, for the glory of God. He can't wash your sins, but it can make you a murderer. We're okay this morning. I hope we are. God help us if we're not okay in Podunk, East Tennessee, preaching against Islam this morning. God help us. I'd expect that out of a New York City crowd. They're not used to that. But it ought not bother us one bit. And it ought not bother any Bible believer one bit. Not one bit. We ought to have no problem calling out false heretical religions and exposing them for the straight out of hell wickedness that they are. We ought not have problem with that if we're Bible believers. That's, that's biblical principles this morning. The reason young people are flocking to it, they're looking for something real. Notice the urgency of Moses. If this one thing, if I don't get this, you know what I find? This encourages me. Moses says, we'll not go up hence. Carry us not up hence. He says, I don't want to move from here until I figure out what I'm missing. Oh, would to God every church would gain that attitude. Would to God every church would gain that attitude. Listen, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud and encouraged by our church. I ain't never had any. I'm long-winded. Amen? I mean, I'm extra long-winded. I get that. I understand. I'm long-winded enough to, to start a tornado. I understand that this morning. we got a church that loves me and is patient with me and lets me get up and preach the Word of God. And I'm thankful for that this morning. You know what the old-time Baptists used to do? They'd get in a meeting and they'd start singing and praying and calling on God. And they'd keep on until something happened. Until something. You know what they said? If thy presence go not with us, carry us not up hence. They didn't, they, I don't even know if, were clocks even invented in the 1700s? I don't know. But if they were, it didn't matter, at least not to that group. Because they said, we're not going anywhere until God shows up. Would to God every church would get that attitude. And I don't just mean about their, their services. I, I mean just a whole attitude. Lord, I don't want to do anything without the presence of God. Anything. We're getting ready to do VBS. I'm excited about it. A little scared about it, to be honest with you. Children scare me. But I'm looking forward to it. It scares me because you got enough of them in one group that if they wanted to take over and start a Lord of the Flies scenario, they could. You know? We just give them spoons to eat with. It don't matter what they're eating. We don't want them having forks or knives. But, you know, I'm looking forward to VBS. What to God, it was the heart's cry of every member of Wall Ridge Baptist Church from the pulpit to, to every pew to say, Lord God, I don't want to do this thing without the presence of God on it. Yes, I don't want to do this thing. Why, why do we think children's ministry doesn't need the presence of God on it? 
That's ludicrous. If anything needs a presence of God, it's a ministry to young hearts and young minds that they understand the truth of God's Word before it's everlasting too late or before their life is in shambles. We need to get to a place where the presence of God is a necessary thing in our lives, in our church life, in our home life, in our marital life, that the presence of God, if it's not there, we're not going up hence. You know what Moses was saying? Moses wasn't saying, Lord, if you don't go with me, I'm not going to do anything. He was saying, Lord, if you don't go with me, I'm going to stay here till you decide to go with me. Amen. Saying, Lord, I'm not moving anywhere until you are ready to move. Till you're ready to go. Till you're ready to do it. We see the plea for the glory. We see that there is a place for the glory of God. I like this. You know what God says to him? God says to Moses, there is a place by me. Oh my, I could, we could be here till next Sunday if I really cut loose on that. I wouldn't even give you bathroom breaks. Be a mess. It's an appointed place. You know one of the things that, that, that just absolutely grieves me to no end? This notion that we can worship God on our terms. That grieves me to no end. Who are you worshiping, yourself or Him? If you're worshiping Him, it ought to be on His terms. I fear a lot of churches are worshiping themselves, and that's the problem. If we're going to do it God's way, we're going to have to do it God's way. He said, there is a place by me. That encourages me because it's an appointed place, it's a particular place, but it's an available place. (laughs) He didn't say there's a place by me, but you're going to have to wait. Oh, this ought to encourage the heart of a small church like ours. You know that? It ought to encourage our heart to know that we don't need three, four hundred worship. We don't need but two or three. We don't need all the machinery in the world. Listen, I, I hope one day, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I hope that one day we, we have, you know, all, all the nice things. That'd be nice. Uh, we, we'd have, you know, a bunch of big old huge Sunday school rooms and we'd have this and that and the other. I mean, that, that'd be nice. But isn't an encouragement that there's a place by God right now where we can see the glory of God? He didn't say there's a place by me for sale. He didn't say there's a place by me, but you need so many. He didn't say there's a place by me, but you're going to have to work hard at it. The Lord said there is a place by me where you can see the glory of God. There is a place... There's a frame of mind and a frame of heart. That's what I'm trying to get you to understand this morning. You can have the power and presence of God in your life if you desire it, because there is a place by Him. Notice the proximity of it. He said, by me, by me. And I like this. Thou shalt stand upon a rock. Upon a rock. Other foundation can no man lay. The only way. The only way. And listen, there's a lot of fanaticism and there's a lot of uh, emotionalism in this day that we live in. You know that? There's a lot of, a lot, a lot of this mess is in the flesh. And I understand that in this day that we live in. You know where you really see the power and presence of God? You know where you really see His glory? Uh, With your feet firmly planted on the foundation of His Word and His Son. You say, I thought the rock was Jesus Christ. Yeah, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. The nature of the written Word and the nature of the living Word are one and the same. They're synonymous. And we find that with our feet firmly planted on the Word of God, you want to see the power of God in in your life? 
Slide your feet up under his table sometime. Put that fork and knife in, 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 in his dinner plate. Open his book and make it real in your life. That's what I'm getting at. There's no Christian that does not have the word of God in his life that is powerful. None. Absolutely none. The Bible calls, you say, well, I, I just want the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm concerned with. What's he going to do in your life without the sword of the Spirit? Listen, that's where this thing really cuts. I, I'm be honest with you, and I, I know this is a little bit scattered this morning. I understand that, but but when it really comes down to, it, you know what the work of the Holy Spirit does in your life? He takes His sword, which is the Word of God, and goes in and trims away that which is unnecessary, and cuts away and fights off the flesh and does those things in your life. This thing of the presence of God is not just about having a shout the house down meeting. I love it when God moves in. I love it when the Holy Spirit is sweet. I love it when there's shout. I love it when there's all. That's wonderful. But this business of the presence of God, that, that's an effectual thing. Amen. Changes you. Changes you. You have your feet upon the foundation of that rock. But notice not only do you have your feet upon the foundation of that rock, but the Bible tells us that the Lord told Moses he'd put him in a cliff to the rock. It, it's, it's not only an appointed place, an available place, but it's an opened place. It's a place that's been cleft. It's a place that's been cut. It's a place where a, a, a way has been made that was not there. Can I remind you, there was a time when the rock of ages was cleft for you and I. There was a time when that soldier embodying all the malicious hatred of a Gentile world, took that spear. He already knew he was dead. He already knew he was dead. But he took that spear and he thrust it into the side of our Savior and out poured water and blood, the Bible says. Do you know that through the death of Jesus Christ and through the crucifying of yourself in Him, in Him, and being in Christ, that's where the glory and presence of God is found. You will not have the power of God in your life as long as you have the power of you in your life. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That's curious, isn't it? I'm crucified with Christ. Paul says, I'm dead. Nevertheless, I live. Okay, so it's Paul's body, but who's living? Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now... Live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, I took myself and I laid Him down on His cross and I drove the nails into either side and into the feet of my flesh and I crucified my aspirations and my ambitions. I crucified myself and my wishes and my desires and I took that old man's soul and I put him to death and I said, you don't have any dominion over me anymore. And I submitted myself to the King of glory. And Paul said, I die daily. It's a thing you have to do every day. Every day. When it comes to things that God does, you know He only has to do it once. When it comes to things you and I do, you know that we have to do it uh, daily. Daily. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. When you got saved, uh, Christ nailed your sin to His cross. But daily we have a responsibility to nail ourselves to His cross. Every single day. It's in the crucified life that the power and presence of God is found. No other place. We see the promise of the glory of God. 
I like this, and I'm done. We've run out of time anyway. But you know what the Lord does? The Lord takes him and He places him in that place. It's a good spiritual lesson to us that it's through the exercise of the Spirit of God that we do crucify ourselves. We can't do it in our own energy. We have to be placed in the cleft of the rock. But He takes His hand. The hand denotes the will and desire of God. Hand is symbolic in many ways with providence and with will as well as protection. And he takes his hand and covers it over him. And he says, when I pass by, you'll see my backside, but you will not see my face. For no man can see me and live. I got more questions about that phrase than I do answers. I'm going to be honest with you. But I want to give you a few things I observed. You say, I wonder why that is, preacher, that no man could see his face and live. I believe there's a few reasons. One of them is because God in all his glory is a consuming fire. If a man without a glorified body would see God in all his glory, it would literally strike him dead. Literally strike him dead. But I believe there's another reason. The Bible says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. God showed Moses enough to make His presence real, but not enough that His presence might be taken for granted. I wish we could get all of heaven right here on earth, don't you? Well, I don't wish that. We'd mess it up if we did. But boy, wouldn't it be nice to get all of the glory of God, all of His glory in our life. But do you know that when God moves in in a mighty way in your life and mine, do you know that's just a drop of it? That's just a drop of the limitless power and presence of God. There's so much more that we never see. He showed him just a glimpse, just a moment, and it was as he was passing by. If he wanted to see that glimpse again, he was going to have to catch up with God again. This is a daily thing. This is a weekly thing. This is something that has to be burning in our hearts on a consistent basis. One glimpse isn't going to do it. It's a consistent thing over and over and over again. I asked my young people in Sunday school this morning, and I think it's a question we all need to ask, what do I worship most in my life? Not what do I worship in my life, what do I worship most in my life? What do I deem necessary? Do I deem food necessary? Of course you would. Some of us more than others. We're just insecure. There ain't going to be enough. Amen. Amen. Do you deem money as a necessary thing? You need money. Money's important. Money's not evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. What are the things in life that you value above everything else? And can I propose to you, until we get to a place that the presence and power of God is a necessity for us. We're not going to have it. This is not a casual business. we got to get to the place where for the power of God, we're willing to spend some time in prayer. We're willing to clean out some things out of our life. We're willing to get our hearts submitted to the God of heaven. We're willing to dig in and get in His Word and find something real for our lives. It's got to be something that becomes necessary to us. Or we're never going to have it. This morning, I wonder what you're living your life for. 
And I wonder if it could be that what you're living your life for is not the very thing that Christ died for. I wonder if what you're living your life for this morning is not the high level of living that God intended you to have. I don't mean temporally, I mean spiritually. I wonder this morning if you're living your life without the effectual presence of God. And maybe this morning you've got to a place where you're tired of it. You want to gather around an old-fashioned altar and call on the God of heaven and ask for His presence and ask for His power.